But uh, how do we understand the church? And so there's a number of different components of, uh, of this and this. And so we're going to see uh, in here that the church is visible and invisible. It's local and it's universal. Uh, it's militant and it's triumphant. And it's organic. It's an organism. Um, and it's an institution. And so those things can seem kind of paradoxical. Um, to say something is both visible and visible almost sounds like a contradiction. But what we're going to do is just unpack uh, how those things look and what we can learn and understand from the church as we look at it. So uh, the church as visible and invisible. So Burkhoff says in his systematic theology, the invisible church is the church as God sees it a church which contains only believers, while the visible church is the church as man sees it, consisting of those who profess Jesus Christ with their children and therefore uh, a judging to be the community of the saints. This may and always does contain some who are not yet regenerated. Okay, So, um, so as we look at the visible and the invisible, uh, again, the invisible church is only the elect. It's all of God's people through all time. Uh, the church, or the visible church, is the church as we see it. Uh, on a Sunday morning, as people gathered here into the church, visible, um, that's going to uh, contain uh, people with their kids. It's going to contain people who are coming to visit. It's going to contain people who. Uh, profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but may not actually have saving faith. Um, that's what we see. So um, there, there is only one universal church, but that church manifests itself differently when viewed from the perspective of God and man. And so in the Reformation, this is really important. Um, the, the Roman church would assert that the institutional church, the visible church, um, was the true church. It was the one visible organization that it had descended directly from the apostles uh, in an unbroken line of succession. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But as a result, the institution of the church, the visible church, mediates that uh, salvation, and there is no salvation outside of the visible institutional church. That would be what Roman Catholicism would have said, is because there is one church, one visible church, uh, salvation is mediated through that one visible church, and anyone outside of that is uh, not uh, a part of saving faith. And so grace was imparted through the office uh, and through the sacraments. So Luther and Calvin come onto the scene and uh, insist that the church is ultimately invisible. So the, the church is God's elect, but it's temporarily visible as we live our lives. So they stress that when they speak of a visible and invisible church, they don't refer. So as we talk about these things, they're not referring to two different churches, but to two aspects of the one church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so as we talk about visible and invisible, local and universal, we're not talking about two things. We're talking about two elements of one thing. So hopefully that makes sense as we go through it. Um, so that distinction guards us against equating membership in a visible church with salvation because we know that there is an actually an invisible church where that is where all of God's elect are. But on the other hand, it also dis it makes it to where we don't disregard public identification with the visible church uh, because it's also a key component. Does that make sense? Okay. So again, the visible church is composed of those who have professed faith and outwardly attend a church who show uh, and, and show outward uh, evidence of salvation, of an inward spiritual change. So it's the church as seen through the human eye. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 2, the, the intro to Paul's first letter, letter to Corinth. Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together 
with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul kind of here is hitting on both of these, right? He's writing to a local church, a visible church, um, who are called together to be saints, both in the church in Corinth, but also those who labor in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. So we see that component there. And then um, the invisible component <clears throat> is composed, again, of all the people in heaven and on earth uh, who have ever been or ever will be God's people. So another way to say this is that they uh, are all the elect from the foundation of the world. So the church as God sees it. Visible church as man sees it. Invisible church as God sees it. 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. What a comforting thought that is. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal, uh, festal gathering into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Um, as we're being brought into this city of God, we're being brought into a list of people enrolled in heaven. So as we talk about the invisible church, the church as God sees it, he has the book of life that shows who truly are his. That's what we mean when we saw, uh, say the invisible church. Um, Burkhoff again, the church is said to be invisible because she is essentially spiritual and in her spiritual essence cannot be discerned by the physical eye. And because it is impossible to determine infallibly who do and who do not belong to her. Um, so within any local church, there can be some mixture of true believers, professors of faith uh, that are not truly converted, and genuine inquirers, people who are actually interested uh, who haven't made a profession of faith. So Jesus' parable uh, of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, uh, where on the day of judgment, he will divide the wheat from the chaff. Um, in his statement that says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, reflect that possibility. Uh, as pastors of churches, you need to know. Um, we're going to talk about membership. Uh, Josh told me you guys spent an entire week on church membership. So I'm not going to talk about it as much as I was planning on it because um, you don't need to hear uh, more content than an entire week on it, more than likely. But um, as we talk about uh, looking at protecting your church by having church membership, uh, making sure that the people who covenant with your church in membership are actual converted, regenerated believers, as best as you can tell, and as you ask those questions in your church membership meetings, which he said you guys did some uh, like mock church membership interviews, which is just awesome. That's a great practical way of getting those reps in. Um, uh, just know, not everyone who comes into membership at your church um, will be a born-again believer. Uh, it protects your heart. Uh, it protects your expectations um, of how quickly people will, will uh, learn and trust in what you're saying. Um, so pastoral implication there. Okay, so the church is also local and it's universal. So we, we uh, see that distinction in Paul's image of the body of Christ. In the, um, and then in Ephesians 1, and 23, the body is the universal church. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the body is the Corinthian church. So the body of Christ can, is, is in a city, is in Addis Ababa, uh, but it's also in... America and globally as well. So the local church are people gathered together in a particular location uh, who have committed themselves to practically walk out their Christian life together. So the, the local church is going to be the visible church in a particular spot, right? Um, this commitment is to the vision and values of that local church, spiritual authority God places in that local church, and relationship with the other believers, God joins us together uh, with in the various works of service uh, that we are to perform within the mission of that church. So 
Um, the local church is important because as we talk about the church, some people can say, well, I'm a Christian and look at the church universal, look at all of the believers, the, the kind of invisible church that's out there and stress and emphasize their relationship with others without committing themselves to a local church. As we look at the importance of a local church, that's where Christians are going to walk out the one another's of Scripture. If there isn't defined people that you're committing yourself to, how can we really know what the one another's should look like, who that should be to? And so the local church is who you're actually committing yourself to as a visible expression of being in the body of Christ. Okay, so... Um, uh, it, it, here's what the local church then is doing as it gathers together. Hebrews 10.24, the local church is considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. They're not neglecting to meet with one another, um, but they're encouraging each other. So a, as you do that, that's going to be with specific people in a specific place. Um, if your version of fulfilling Hebrews 10.24 is to, to send a Snapchat to someone uh, in another country or across the globe, that's not what the Bible has in view for doing life together as the church. Um, uh, the Bible talks about in Acts 2, people are added to the church. Okay, well, that, that visibly looks like something. Uh, the church, a, a number of Paul's letters, is the church at a particular location. It's a visible local church. Um, the one and others, again, assume a close relationship. Uh, there's calls for demonstrated unity. We talked about the passage in John 13 earlier of how you love one another. Well, that needs to look like love to a specific person uh, in a particular place. It's not generalities. Um, the idea of, of giving, uh, being to the local church while giving outside is, uh, is not required but voluntary. So in 2 Corinthians 8, when he's calling uh, the church in Macedonia to give generously to the church of Jerusalem. He's not laying that down as a uh, prescriptive like he does on uh, don't withhold uh, food from the ox, on, on feeding the local pastors and giving to them. Uh, but it, that in and of itself has a distinction between them giving to their local church for their overseers, but having as an optionality of giving to the more uh, broad universal church. Um, sacraments and church discipline assume that, uh, that the people who are in and who are out are visibly seen through that sacrament. That shows up physically in a local church. Um, elders are always, they're always local. Uh, they're charged with care for which they will be accountable, Hebrews 13, 17. Um, and that assumes that the people who are submitting to them is in a local congregation of people. Um, J. Rodman Williams writes this, the church universal is invariably expressed in the local church. Four, the church is always a gathered body of believers in a particular location. The local church, accordingly, is not just one part or fragment of the church universal. It's not somehow a lesser, perhaps even inferior, assemblage of the whole church, Rather, it actually, it is actually the total church in its individual expression. I'm going to fill that out in a moment. Uh, every local gathering, however small or large, is the church of Jesus Christ and is therefore complete to him. So as we look at local and as we look at universal, we're not meant to understand it as this local church is a small fragment of the church, though it is a small component of, of all believers, right? It is the church of Christ in its total expression in an individual place. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. So uh, again, a couple other things I jotted down here to talk through. In the local church, and this, this is why Michael can say on a Sunday, I wish tomorrow were Sunday because when the church gathers together locally, this is what, what's happening. It provides a place to hear the word preached and applied over a long period of time through a preaching diet. It provides a place to put our commitment 
to God and thus each other into practice? How does our commitment to God and to one another that the scriptures call us to actually look like? Well, the local church gives us a tangible way for that to be fleshed out. It provides a context for us to mature our character, um, and uh, it shows a, a place for us, for our character to be revealed, and sometimes for our character to be challenged by other people, um, and if necessary, in church discipline. Uh, it provides us a place as aspiring pastors to be, uh, to be qualified uh, and to be uh, assessed that that assumes that that assessment is happening by someone local who's able to actually look at your life and your doctrine. Um, so all of this is a place where um, local church is, needs to be celebrated um, and, and practiced. Uh, so the universal church, the local church, universal church is composed of all people on earth who are believers. This is a little bit different than the in, uh, invisible church because the invisible church is all of God's elect through all time. The universal church is all of God's elect currently on earth. So small distinction, but one nonetheless. Uh, Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Well, obviously the church in Samaria was geographically separated from the church in Judea, but the universal church at large had peace and was being built up. Charles Spurgeon says this, what a wonderful, this, this can be used, uh, you, you'll have these outlines, but what I'm hoping to do in these outlines as well, just a quick caveat, is to give you guys good biblical references, but also good quotes that as you go back and reference this in years to come, hopefully will serve you. Uh, Spurgeon says this, I know there are some who say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. Now, why not? Well, because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as being obedient? This is so great. This is so Charles Spurgeon. There's a brick. What is it made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. What a quote that is. As we evangelize and talk to people who bring baggage about their experiences in a local church, we want to be able to celebrate uh, with all of our imperfections, with all that happens in the church that, that, is, that is far from, from ideal or perfect. We do want to point and say, you're disobeying what the Lord has called you to by not committing yourself to a local church. Um, and if you're bold enough, you, you can use the brick analogy and, and say, you're, you know, just as this brick is a good-for-nothing brick laying on the ground when it's supposed to be in a house, so you too, Christian, are a good-for-nothing Christian laying on the ground when you should be a part of the house of God. Um, I, I use that line pretty cautiously, but uh, it'll, it'll preach nonetheless. Um, so local church, universal church. Okay, so the church is militant and triumphant. I, I like this one a lot. I don't have a ton of content on the outline for it, but here's what we mean by that. The church is militant in that uh, she is called to actually engage in warfare. We, we look at spiritual warfare and the, uh, the principalities of darkness uh, that are at play. Um, we read the book of Ephesians um, the church is called to fight. Um, and if that's not a category you have theologically, I hope that it is one. We fight. You fight for your holiness in your personal life. You fight, just like Michael's illustration, to protect the church that God has equipped you to do because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your members. Um, so the church is militant 
and that we're engaged in holy warfare. We're suiting up in the armor of God. And we're duty-bound to carry on an incessant warfare against the hostile world in every form in which it reveals itself. Um, whether the church, uh, whether uh, in the church or outside of it, and against all spiritual forces of darkness. Um, Ephesians 6 there. Uh, but we, we just finished, uh, a ser- we're about to finish a sermon series through the book of Revelation. Um, and as you look at Revelation and uh, you have the beast and the dragon and the prostitute who are all uh, trying to just lure God's people away um, and, and to be ensnared and entrapped in, in his schemes, um, we're called to both discern and to fight against that. So the church is active in, in fighting against the, uh, the rulers of darkness and the spiritual forces. Uh, but we also live as a church as a triumphant church. We bank on the promises of God. Listen, the future of the church is not uncertain. Isn't that great? Like, we're not coming in to pastor or to evangelize or to build a church that is somehow going to fail. We are people who fully believe, trust, and bank on that the future of God's church is totally sealed and secure. So we're both fighting, but we do so as people who know they've won the battle. So the church on earth, it's the militant church, uh, but the church in heaven already and where we will one day be is a triumphant church. Uh, There the sword is exchanged for the palm branch of victory, The battle cries are turned into songs of triumph. The cross is replaced by the crown. The strife is over. The battle is won. And the saints reign with Christ forever and ever. That's our reality. And so that is an, is it a a not yet thing? But it's an already thing. There's in biblical theology and eschatology, you have all of this already not yet. We already have that promise which means no matter what happens, no matter what beatings uh, you receive for the uh, cause of Christ, no one can beat you enough to where you're not a triumphant saint. No one can slander you enough in pastoral ministry where you're not going to receive, well done, my good and faithful servant. No matter what people say about you, we are triumphant in our ecclesiology. And that gives boldness to the word that we preach. In America, when, when uh, states and cities are making it illegal to say that homosexuality is a sin and that uh, God gives men and women distinct roles as distinct genders, as that becomes attacked and illegal, the church can boldly rise up as a militant church to say, no, we're going to fight that. That is incorrect, that's wrong, that's the forces of evil and darkness speaking when God's light has something better for people to say. So we fight against that, but the reason we can fight with so much confidence is though they can put us in prison and fine us and shut us down and kill us, um, we're triumphant. We're a triumphant church. Uh, What a beautiful picture that gives as you look to do the work of of a shepherd and pastor um, in your church. So let me pause there. Any questions, militant, triumphant thoughts there? I almost want to like turn on a uh, uh, speech from Braveheart or something like William Wallace, you know, uh, to just get, I mean, it doesn't matter guys, what comes your way. Um, the battle's over. Uh, it, you're going to face so many frustrating things in pastoral ministry, uh, there will be days where you don't want uh, to, to fight your own sin. There are days you, where you won't even want to prepare a sermon. Um, but we fight and, and we work and we do the job of a pastor. And you do the job, even, even before that, you do the job of a Christian, of presenting yourself holy and blameless uh, to Christ because uh, we've been bought. We're not our own. Uh, you look at the language of, of Paul and Philippians uh, I make every effort to make him uh, to, to make Christ my own because he has made me his own. Um, that is that is this in in the Bible. Um, we fight and we strive and we work and we work hard. I mean, Paul says I worked harder than everyone, but not I, but the grace of God within me. Um, 
and, and we're triumphant. Um, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can someone say to die is gain? Well, they can say that because they have a triumphant view, not only of salvation, but of ecclesiology and what the church is going to do. Um, um, okay, uh, finally, before we uh, jump into some attributes of the church, uh, the church is an organism and it's an institution. So this one will be shorter. It's an organism in that uh, we, we have a connection with others through the bond of the Spirit. Um, and so as we talk about the church invisible, the church universal, um, uh, there is a real bond that I have with you 8,000 miles away because we've been sealed by the same Spirit. Um, and so the, the church as an organism uh, exists charismatic, in, in meaning that the Spirit is at work in you in Ethiopia and in me in Kentucky. Um, and all the kinds of gifts and the talents that become manifested uh, and are utilized in the work of the Lord. Um, Edmund Clowney says this, the fellowship of the Spirit is more than a sense of camaraderie. It is a sharing together in the presence of the Spirit <coughs> and of His gifts. The gifts of the Spirit do differ, but they never divide, for they enable the church to function as an organism. As we're, uh, as we're living in the good of the spiritual gifts, as we're walking in the Spirit, as we're looking to grow as uh, brothers and sons of, uh, of the Lord, um, we do it in a way that's, that's, that's organic and natural. But the church is an institution. To put it very bluntly, the church is an institution. It is a thing. It's a visible thing. Um, and so we have a connection with other believers through the Spirit, which is organic. But we also have a connection with uh, other believers through the body of Christ in a local church. So, all right, let's move in uh, and we'll finish up with, with this. A couple of the attributes of the church. So this is really important from uh, the Reformation. <coughs> they look to really say, okay, what is the church? Um, and uh, so the church is unified first. So as we look at the attributes of the church, church unified, Jesus says, I will build my church in, in Matthew 16, um, not churches, uh, I will build my church. So uh, Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith um, says this, God by his word and spirit has been calling sinful people out of the whole human race to create a new redeemed humanity. All of God's people are unified in one body. Bruce Milne says this, The true unity of the Holy Spirit of all regenerate people is a fact. Irrespective of outward denominational disunity, the call for unity in the New Testament is therefore a summons to keep the fundamental oneness of life which the one Spirit has imparted through regeneration. The unity of the invisible church is an accomplished fact given with salvation. I think that deserves a little bit of filling out there. Um, I, I, I'm not saying anything new to say there's a lot of denominational disunity, right? Um, e even in this city, from what I've heard, um, you know, there's, uh, was it uh, Pente churches? Just uh, a lot of maybe disunity between those and uh, other churches. There's disunity between um, uh, Baptists and Methodists, between Presbyterians and, and Baptists. Uh, there, there are things that are, um, that, that seem to be disunifying of the bride of Christ. But with what we're saying here, we, when we call the church unified, is that what God has done in regenerating people uh, to be sons of the living God and to be in the family of God is that we are, there is an actual reality and an accomplished fact where we're unified as one people. Um, and so we have doctrinal differences, and we'll talk more about how to handle those and, and how to think better about that. Uh, you know, should we just have one huge church where um, there's so many differences and some major doctrinal uh, points? Um, I would say no. We should not have a, a one central church. Uh, the one time that that happened, it didn't go so well with the. Um, and uh, 
But regardless uh, of, of denominational differences, uh, there is a reality where we have unity um, as Christians. And so it, it becomes us. And as you look at social media now, um, true Christians who love Jesus don't seem to talk in a way that is for, first and foremost seeing someone that they have a doctrinal difference with from a standpoint of, of a fundamental unity as being a brother in Christ. They, they engage them in conversation in a way that sounds fundamentally like they have major differences. And that's not to discount the fact that there are some major differences, but should we learn more from a unified church where our language really comes first and foremost out of love and unity for each other? And then we, th then we do go to work to try and correct doctrinal uh, differences and things where people are incorrect. But <clears throat> um, Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, you, you've put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, it is reality that because of our relationship to Christ, we are one with all other Christians. Anyone who's been regenerated and put on Christ uh, has, has put on Christ, um, we're connected to. It's, it's not created by us, that unity. It's created by Christ himself. So uh, 1 Corinthians 1.13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, we weren't baptized into uh, the Methodist church first and foremost or into Reformed, charismatic, sovereign grace world. Um, we were baptized into Christ. We put on Christ. Is Christ divided? He absolutely is not. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For just as the body in is one and has many members, so all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Um, another verse from 1 Corinthians 12 there. Um, Romans 12, as, uh, for as in one body we have many members, uh, again, Ephesians 4, that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Uh, is that what you see when you open your Twitter feed? Uh, the people are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One, unified. Um, there's a lot of verses we could go through there, but um, there, uh, yeah, the, at the end of the day, as we're looking at differences, we're not looking to say that we're united to people who have key fundamental differences. So anyone who says that the doctrines of salvation, the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, or that the scriptures are not God's true word, um, that we're not being called here as we look at the unity of the church to say that we're unified with liberal theology uh, that, that denies foundational tenets of the faith. Uh, I hope that goes without saying, but I'll, I'll make it clear regardless. Uh, but there can be unity even when there's disagreements over things like uh, church governance and uh, how worship and liturgy looks like, how the gifts operate and are seen. Um, we, we can still have unity. Um, yeah. Uh, John 17, and then we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving. I'll see if you have any questions. Uh, this is Jesus' prayer. He says, hey, is this in the Garden of Gethsemane? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Christians. That they may be all that uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Do you see how how often Jesus is is saying this as he's praying for us? so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, i.e. the church, i.e. believers, may be with me uh, where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know uh, that you have sent me. I made, known, uh, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, what a beautiful prayer. That's Jesus praying for you. I, I, I think sometimes we miss that, that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying for you. Uh, Jesus right now, living to intercede for us, is praying for you. Right now. I've got people praying for me. I'm sure you probably have people who are praying for you. How much deeper of a comfort it is to know that Jesus has prayed and is right now. Jesus right now is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf to the Father. And when I look at a Christian who, who, uh, who doesn't believe in the continuation of the gifts, which I think is wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hope they brought in a sovereign grace guy who, you know, uh, believes in the, in the gifts. I do. Um, I hope you do too. Um, when I look at John MacArthur, uh, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong in the continuation of the gifts. Um, but in a doctrinal difference, is the dominating factor of how I view John MacArthur that he draws a really hard line, I think an unnecessarily, unnecessary and, and wrong line on spiritual gifts? Or do I see Jesus Christ is actively interceding for my brother in Christ right now? When you look at someone who has a, a doctrinal difference on, um, on elder-ruled versus congregationalism, Complementarianism. Do we look and say, uh, what huge differences we have? How dare you even believe that? Can't you see this is wrong in the Bible? Now, I'm not saying that they're not wrong. People who aren't complementarian are wrong. I, I have no problem saying that. I wouldn't believe what I did if I didn't think the other view was wrong, right? Uh, people who don't believe in the continuation of the gifts, I think, are wrong. People who believe in, in congregationalism, I think, are wrong. Um, but do I look and say, uh, I can't believe you would believe such a silly thing? <laughs> I hope I don't. Um, I hope my attitude is, oh, I hear you. Tell me more about that. Um, and let's have unity in the spirit. We're going to be at different churches probably. Um, if you're a congregationalist and I'm elder ruled, listen, we're probably not going to be in the same church. Um, if you believe all of the gifts of the Spirit have totally stopped, and I believe they should be actively pursued and practiced, you're probably going to feel uncomfortable when someone speaks a word of prophecy on a Sunday morning in our church. Um, but we're unified in Christ. Is that how I see that person? Is first and foremost unified in Christ, or do I first and foremost see we come in different places doctrinally? Richard Phillips says this, denominations will allow us to have organizational unity where we have full agreement, i.e. sovereign grace, i.e. the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, whatever you want to insert there, and allow us to have spiritual unity with other denominations since we are not forced to argue our way to perfect agreement but can accept our differences of, of opinion on secondary matters. Let me pause there. I, I stole that, um, that line of the one-time... The church was one large organization here from James Montgomery Boyce. What a great line. The worst times in the history of the church have been when everyone is part of one large organization. Um, isn't that true? Uh, Seek to be pastors who see other men and women in the Lord as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Um, first and foremost, before we see doctrinal differences. Don't, don't be blind to doctrinal differences. You're not going to lead a healthy church if you're just totally oblivious and blind to the fact that someone believes something that's doctrinally different than what your church confesses and holds to. That would be really unwise pastoring. 
Um, but don't make that the thing you live and die on. Church is also called to be holy. Yes, we are. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It may seem odd that Paul starts his letter to Corinth, who were sex, celebrating the, the liberty of sexual freedom that we see in 1 Corinthians 5, that were coming together and functionally getting drunk off the wine of the communion table. Uh, it might seem odd that he starts this letter to that church by stating to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Not my first pastoral instinct uh, if I was looking at the church of Corinth. Uh, who are called to be saints. You think of saint, you think holy, set apart uh, with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. Um, but that's what we see. 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10, 14, for, uh, By a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you want a verse on uh, positional and progressive sanctification, boom, here you go. Um, has perfected those who are being sanctified. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, and who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, Ephesians 2, if you, uh, in, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Bruce Milne says this, a church's relationship with Christ, uh, a, a, a church's relationship with Christ, the church's head, will be expressed in the moral character and tone of their common life and relationships. A church which is a stranger to holiness is a stranger to Christ. Listen, as we talk about the church and we talk about the attributes of the church, we're unified, but we're holy. If you see a church that gives total permission and passivity to sins and offenses against God's word, it should call us to wisely question whether they are a true church of God or not. Listen, a church which is a stranger to holiness is a stranger to Christ. We have been set apart, we have been washed, we have been regenerated. That is a mark of the church. So our primary identity as a Christian is not a sinner anymore, but a saint and a child of God. That is not to say that we don't sin. I, I, we don't have to look very far back uh, to see sins in our lives. Uh, but that sin is not where our identity lies. The epistles uh, address us this way. Uh, there's not once in a single epistle uh, where we're addressed as sinners. There's not once. Um, it, so it's an important that we recognize that we are sinners, but uh, equally, if not more important, that we recognize our identity in Christ as saints, uh, our positional righteousness. So in Romans 1.7, he writes, to those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, Jude 1, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus. Um, our, our primary identity now is those set apart that we now live in. So 1 Peter 1, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I've got a concern that the modern day church doesn't have this as a category. I have a concern that there's a lot of churches that are too afraid because of cultural pressures, movements, trends, to be able to say to their congregation and to their members, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. As pastors, please call your people to holiness. Um, the church is a holy place. It's made up of a lot of sinners, and you're not going to have to go to many uh, worship services before you see, see sin uh, rear its head in some, some way, shape, or form. But 
We are positionally sanctified, washed, regenerated, and we're called to now walk uh, in the newness of Christ that we have. One other thought I, I just have is personal application that I think the Spirit's bringing to mind is, you know, as we look at the doctrine of the church, um, it, it calls the church to be a place of holiness and, and us looking to have that as a category for, you know, does, does, is my church growing in holiness? Am I, please, please take an opportunity in all these doctrines of the church specific to Christ's bride and just ask yourselves, is this me? Um, if, if I'm wanting to be a shepherd of the flock of God, and I, I'm wanting to feed and protect the, the church of God, and I want that church to be holy, it, am, I, am, am I showing holiness in the best way that I can? Lord, forgive mixed motives and Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm a wretched sinner, and I see that more and more every day. But do I have as a category as a Christian man and as a pastor that I'm, 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 I'm growing in and prioritizing holiness in my life? Maybe, may, maybe one of you needs that word. Um, has holiness been a category that you put on the back burner because you're pursuing theological studies and it's just busy and so you're idle. Um, your mind is so focused on reading and all this stuff that pornography feels like it's okay. Um, I don't know what those temptations or sins might be, but know this, that Christ has called the church to be holy. He's called you as a member of the body. One member in one body to be holy. Please prioritize holiness in your life. Please. All right. Church is Catholic. Not really a good way to transition from that uh, uh, exhortation. Uh, now, what do we mean by Catholic? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Does that mean that we are, we're a part of the Roman Catholic Church and didn't even know it? Who, who knew that Michael and Josh made such a huge mistake to bring this guy in? Um, Edmund Clowney says this, <clears throat> the Catholicity means that the church is Christ's. We cannot exclude those whom he welcomes or welcome whom, those whom he excludes. Revelation 7, 9, cast a vision, I think, of what uh, the ultimate Catholicity, the Catholic church of being for all people looks like. John's vision, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, what a great verse after talking about holiness, with palm branches in their hands. Uh, we've already covered Galatians 3.28, but there's no, neither Jew nor Greek. How revolutionary was that concept for Paul to write? Uh, Jews who, who, who pride in themselves on being uh, totally separated from Gentiles, and particularly Greeks, who had a plethora of gods that they worshipped and sacrifices that they made. Jews were taught, separate yourself from them. And Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Your Jewishness counts for nothing. And you are accounted as the same as the pagan Greek convert who's sitting next to you in your worship service. There's neither slave nor free. How revolutionary would that be? Uh, back in a time where, where slavery and, and servanthood, where people were uh, functionally owned by another for a set period of time, to be called the same as one who may, may have owned slaves or been a free man. There's no male and female. These are all very different things. Um, but in Christ, all of those things have been uh, eliminated in how we then come as a people uh, to God. And so Wayne Grudem says this, uh, God's wisdom is shown even to angels and demons when people from different racial and cultural backgrounds are united in Christ in the church. 
If the Christian church is to be faithful to God's wise plan, it will be in the forefront in breaking down racial and social barriers in societies around the world. And thus will be a visible manifestation of God's amazingly wise plan to bring great unity out of great diversity. And therefore, calls all creation to honor Him. So as we look at the, the nature of the church being Catholic, we're holding on to the fact that we're, we realize that on the day where all of Christ's bride is gathered together, we're going to see a lot of people from a lot of different languages and a lot of different skin colors and a lot of different uh, countries and tribes and people all coming together clothed in the exact same garment, which is pure right robes representing the righteousness of Christ who they now stand as one member of. It's incredible. Um, a great, uh, Ray Orland has, has a good, uh, just a couple of quotes on here uh, that I can send out to you guys, but uh, Ray Orland says, those in this prophetic vision remain multicultural as all the nations and many peoples. I think he's referencing Revelation 7 there. Uh, what changes is that in all their beautiful diversity, they find their greatest delight in a new devotion to the Lamb. John Calvin says this, uh, and this is referencing Isaiah chapter 2, which talks about uh, different people coming together in harmony. He says, instead of attacking each other, they will cultivate peace and friendship between each other. You know, another personal, <coughs> excuse me, personal application, is, is there anybody that you would be really hesitant to welcome into your church when Christ would totally accept them? Um, somebody from a different socioeconomic background. Uh, someone comes in and they are very poor. Um, do we cringe at that? And are we less, are we more hesitant to welcome them in. Um, that's what we want to see in the Catholic nature of the church, is that it, it is, it's, it's wide. The, the doors are wide. Uh, Edmund Clowney's note here, though, is also helpful. We, we don't, as we look at this, we, we don't want to have as a category, though, of welcoming anyone and everyone, regardless of any convictions, thoughts, preferences, whatever it might be. This is not a universal call to abstain from calling people to repentance, um, but it is a, a directive to us that if it, there is anyone that we would say cannot come, um, then we, we need to take a look and say, does this align with the nature and attribute of the church as a holy Catholic church? Um, yeah, I yeah, so Catholic would, would be a view of it's a universal church, where as we're looking at, um, you know, concepts of uh, all tribes, tongues, nations, uh, neither Jew nor Greek, all these different diversity and backgrounds uh, coming and being a part of the one Christ. So universal church of believers, uh, the church is, is then called to show that in some way, shape, or form in how it is a Catholic church um, in, in its nature. So it, it's universal in that people types, backgrounds are all welcomed into Christ. And therefore the implication then for a local church is am I living in the attribute of being a Catholic church, universal church, welcoming church to people that, um, you know, if we just put that in the context of Galatians 3 where Paul's writing, um, you know, where a Jewish, a, a Jewish synagogue that had, had seen uh, miraculous conversion is now a church of Christ. So many there have established a church. Would they be fulfilling the attribute of being a Catholic church and how they lovingly welcome Greeks into their, uh, into their congregation uh, and life with one another? Um, would a church that had uh, would, would a church that was predominantly uh, starting a, a, a number of slaves uh, feel that they could welcome in as a brother in Christ uh, a free man or even a slaveholder uh, back then? Uh, would that be something that they would model the Catholic nature of the church in?
Good question. Yeah, that's a great question. So how do we, how do we sort of hold together both the unity of Christ that overlooks doctrinal differences with the Catholicity of the church, which is for its universal and, and wide in scope? So I think that what we're looking at here <clears throat> is a couple of things. One, we're making uh, uh, broad statements about the church that has implications for the local church, but has in scope, first and foremost, the universal church. So let me fill that in more though. So, um, so what this would look like, the count, uh, clowny quote in practicality is that um, if someone, uh, yeah, so I think the example we, we just used earlier, um, someone comes in who, who's clearly impoverished, poor, maybe no shoes on, um, and we recoil as a local church in welcoming, welcoming them and loving them. That would be an opposition to what the Lord has called us to and what we believe as the church being Catholic. Um, so you can fill in a number of different things there of different backgrounds or types or, um, you know, if, if I'm in a church of, uh, of only white people, and an and African-American in Kentucky walks in, does our church recoil at that? Or do we lean in to love them and show them uh, that, they're, that they're welcome? Now, that said, uh, pastorally, if we're looking to welcome all those who Christ welcomes, which uh, for the, for the rec record, Christ welcomes cessationists, uh, <laughs> uh, Christ welcomes congregationalists, Christ welcomes... Uh, egalitarians too, um, potentially depending on how, how crazy they've gotten. Uh, all that all that said, um, pastorally we want to have a heart for if if John MacArthur this will, uh, you know John MacArthur walks into Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, um, one we're we're going to be quite surprised uh, and also very pleased. I'd imagine he's going to sign a number of autographs while he's there. I mean he's he's a big deal, um, but. Uh, but pastorally, what we would do as an elder team is say, yeah, we want to show welcoming love to you and because of our unity, but pastorally from a membership standpoint, that doesn't equate to letting anyone and everyone be a member of your church because we, we believe they're a genuine Christian when there are major doctrinal differences in the practice and life of a church. And so... That, that's going to take shape contextually in different ways, though. So in Louisville, Kentucky, where there are a number of gospel-preaching churches, us as a pastoral team, if someone came in and said, I believe that a woman should be able to be a pastor, we would say, we would have a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that would happen. So without, without going into too much uh, detail, at the end of the day, we would say, listen, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, we, we love you and we, we're glad you're here for service, but that is, not, that is not something our church practices. It's not something we believe. It, it is not something that we would hold to or celebrate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we believe we're unified with you in the universal church, but you know, there's a lot of churches that you can plug into that we believe are true churches that you you can live your Christian life in in better conscience. And as we're looking to protect, so a pillar and a buttress, we're supporting the truth and we're protecting against some false doctrine. If I had a category pastorally that someone was going to come in and try and, um, try and, and sow discord on complementarian versus egalitarian positions, pastorally, I can believe in the Catholic nature of the church all day long, but... It would be unwise and, un, I, yeah, I think it would be uh, unwise and, and poor pastoral care to say we're, we're welcoming, welcoming you in as a member of this church. Uh, now, to, to explicate that a little bit more, to go into more detail, if I'm in uh, China and I'm in a, in a part of the world that has really no churches that preach the Word of God, and I have someone who comes in who, who might believe that the role for women in churches 
should be much more than what my position is pastorally as a complementarian. I'm going to take a different pastoral approach because I believe in the Catholic nature of the church and because I believe there's nowhere I can send this sister in Christ, this brother in Christ to, where they're going to hear the word of God. Does that make sense? So even though in Louisville, Kentucky, my approach would be one thing because of the nature of the church and the, the, the churches that are there that they can do church membership in a local church with, that's going to look different than if I'm pastoring in China where there are no local churches, but the, the, con the situation is exactly the same, just where I find myself in pastorally on how I apply the Catholic nature of the church to who we welcome in and who we don't. Um, all right, and then the final attribute of the church. So um, unified, holy, Catholic, apostolic. Um, and so when we say apostolic, <coughs> excuse me, what we mean there is that uh, the church is based on the doctrine of the apostles as handed down from Jesus himself. Uh, this points to Christ himself as the chief apostle. Uh, apostolicity is not divorced from him. So where scripture is read and preached uh, as the basis for evangelicalism uh, or even evangel evangelism, that's the word I'm looking for, um, as, as scripture is read and preached for evangelism, for preaching, for edification, for the building up of the church, and the supreme rule of faith and practice in that church is based off of the apostolic teaching found in the Bible, that is an apostolic church. Um, so J. Rodman Williams says the this attribute of the church uh, points to the criterion of the church's life, namely that the church always stands under the normative character of the original apostles' instruction and direction. So Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And uh, 1 Timothy 3, 15, yet again, makes uh, uh, an appearance as uh, the church being a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, what's the truth? Um, this, the apostolic teaching of Scripture, is the truth that we hold up both to support the church and to defend the church. So apostolic in nature. Um, we're we're going to fill that more in as we look at the true marks of the church because the preached word, uh, Scripture, is a foundational component of what marks a true church. But um, uh, unified, holy, uh, Catholic, and apostle. Is, uh, apostolic is um, the the four attributes of the church. All right. Meaning, how, how do I reckon? How do we reconcile uh, the apostolic nature of the church being founded on Christ and the apostolic teaching with the church being for all believers in all times, even before the apostles? Is that what you asked? Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think as we see the progressive, so outline two is going to be sort of how we see the biblical theology of the people of God and, and therefore the church of Christ progressed through the storyline and the scripture to where we are now, but, but also to where Paul's writing built on the cornerstone of Christ. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I'm going to say that it's, as I look at that, we're, we're looking at uh, the church, as in Grudem's definition in, in, in Sovereign Grace's Statement of Faith, of being all true believers of all time, um, finding its fulfillment in the hope and expectation of Israel in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, of a promised Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent. And so, um, is it based off of apostolic teaching? No way, it's not based off of apostolic. There were no apostles that were uh, back then. Now, it, we, had, uh, yeah, we had hopes and promises given to Abraham, given to Adam and Eve, uh, given in covenantal relationship throughout the Old Testament. Um, and as that progresses, then we get at the inauguration of um, the church, New Testament, Christ as the 
uh, as the seen and explicitly recognized cornerstone of the church, which before he was not. Like no, no one knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Abraham didn't know. Moses didn't know who Jesus of Nazareth was. But he had hope in a Messiah as the cornerstone of the promises to come in fulfillment from God. So I think as we look at Grudem's definition of the community of all believers for all time, uh, we, we just want to hold a, uh, a progressive nature of uh, promises given, uh, teaching being given to God's people um, in a way that recognizes that we can still legitimately call Abraham a part of the church, even though Abraham had no apostolic teaching. Um, and so now as we're studying ecclesiology, so as we've progressed through and we're studying ecclesiology for the New Covenant, New Testament church, we can say that Christ's church is built on Christ's teaching through the apostles. Um, but as we look holistically over church history and biblical history, we can't say that, that it was built off of the apostolic teaching because apostolic teaching wasn't there. But I think we can say because of what God was doing in creating the people of God, that it's not incoherent or wrong to see the old covenant Israel and true believers who believed in the promise of the Messiah and the hope and the promises of God that would come as being a part of the invisible church. Um, I hope that makes sense. Any follow-up questions to that? Huh? Well, yeah. And, and, and again, I think that's where we want to kind of keep a, oh, I don't want to say the word uh, fluid, but a, a um, even the, the, the recognition of the church is progressive in nature. And so as we talk about the church today, we're talking about the church in a way that is, that is paradigm shifted because of what Christ did and because of what God gave us through his word. And so if, if we're talking about what the church is now, as you guys are looking to serve as pastors, as you're gathering together in 2022, it would be really short-sighted, foolish, and I think unbiblical to not include apostolic teaching as a new covenant church. But the people of God, which we're kind of using as synonymous with the church in all of human history. So when we say the church, and, and Grudem says the church for all believers of all time, he's kind of using that synonymously with the people of God. So God has created a people that in the Old Testament expressed itself through trusting in the promises that God gave. Uh, in, uh, in Israel expressed itself in uh, holding to the law and seeing who God was to his people uh, through the covenants that he had given on paper that they recited, read, celebrated in as you read Psalm 119. Um, but in the New Testament, that the people of God didn't get expressed in the bride of Christ, the church, that, again, is built off of Christ's teaching, apostolic teaching. So, again, I, I don't want to use the word fluid, but I think as we look at the sovereign grace statement of faith and, and Grudem's definition, we want to keep the church as a synonymous, somewhat synonymous word with the people of God in, in human history.